Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Guns N' Roses, and specifically their song, Civil War. Now, this is going to lead me into talking about one of the most controversial rock and roll bands of all time. I'm going to be able to talk about Ipswich. No, really boring East Anglian town of Ipswich is part of this story, and also it's going to lead me on to the conversation about civil wars, including one of the bloodiest wars in history that you might not know anything about. So with that in mind, let's get on with this, and I'm going to say I've made no bones about it, I'm an 80s kid, and I remember back end of the 1980s, I'd listen to all these other great bands, might be Queen or Def Leppard, Dire Straits, and then there was this harder-edged band that came out, and I absolutely, like so many of my fellow students, fell in love with their hard rock sound, their attitude, their amazing guitarists, and their iconography as well. This was Guns N' Roses, because that's the technical name. And it was a love affair that lasted many, many years. And it's interesting that even in 2023, they were still thrilling people coming to see the band in Glastonbury. They won the headlining acts in Glastonbury, and they did not disappoint, even though the sound mix was dreadful and you could barely hear the singer's voice. But allow me to introduce you to the band. They are William Bruce Rose, who's known as Axl Rose, Saul Hudson, which is known as Slash, then there's Jeffrey Isbell, Izzy Stradlin, and the most conveniently Michael Andrew Duff McCagan. So there we go. That's the, the key band members. Uh, various other people have drifted in and out. Indeed, I'm going to come on to the controversy of the band a bit later on. Well, the controversy of the band lineup. There are other controversies around the band. But the 1980s in the Sunset Strip 
in Hollywood was just hot. There was the Viper Room, where all the bad boys went to the clubs, and indeed where River Phoenix ends up dying. So that's quite exciting. And you've got bands like Motley Crue, who were discovered there and were singing loud anthemic rock. This was the era, the 1980s, of hair metal, as it's become known. Think of your Bon Jovis and your White Snakes with their ludicrously luscious heads of hair. Motley Crue, obviously, available too. It's interesting that in Sweet Child of Mine, you get to see Axl Rose at the very beginning of his career, first video. He's got that kind of hair, but very quickly it becomes flat. And he quite often he's wearing a bandana in the videos as well. So he pushes against that. But you get... Like I say, the likes of your Bon Jovi's White Snakes, Def Leppard, etc. Although Def Leppard's British, and there's a lot of musical criticism and review which say this is just noise. This is just pop songs with a guitar riff. And you know what? Yeah, it is, and people like to hear that kind of stuff. So, be it Poison or whatever. Europe, etc. All these bands, you can turn around and say they're not particularly musical, they're not particularly sophisticated, but they fill stadiums, they give you stuff that a teenage boy or girl you could sing along to, and they were fun as well. They weren't as aggressive and potentially overwhelming as the metal bands, full-on heavy metal, the likes of Iron Maiden, who, for the record, I also liked, or Saxon, or Black Sabbath, etc., Lots of bands out there, but they were just heavier. They weren't as easy to, quite frankly, dance to. So what you've got with Guns N' Roses is they are that bridge between the much heavier Metallicas of this world and the almost harmless pop fluff of Bon Jovi. So they were able to appeal, in essence, to both crowds and keep their credibility. It's also worth pointing out that they were incredibly musically ambitious. Maybe not to begin with, but oh my goodness, their initial album was such a calling card and such a sign of confidence from this very young band. So going back a few years, we have... 1970s Ipswich, and growing up there is young Saul Hudson. Now, his family eventually moves to West Coast America, and that's how Slash becomes an American icon. British-American is the way he's generally referred to, but if you like, his genius is he hardly says anything. He is the lead guitarist, after all. He doesn't need to say anything or sing, and I did get his first solo album. It's five o'clock somewhere. Oh, it's seven o'clock somewhere? Eight o'clock somewhere? It's a specific time somewhere. It's five o'clock somewhere. In the world. And you realise he's a very good musician. He's not a very good singer. And that's why you haven't really heard of that. But the 
iconographical look of him with the shades and the big curly hair and the huge top hat. It means that even though we've moved on 35 years from their prime, he still hasn't doesn't look that much different to what he did back in the 80s because that look is almost timeless. I'm sure he dyes his hair now, but I'm not going to go up to him and start that conversation, okay? But also he in his heyday, in his prime, back in the 80s and early 90s, he would stand there, bare-chested, leather trousers, pair of converse, wailing on that guitar, and he was the epitome of a rock god. These people were cool, but not in a silly way. They were almost timelessly cool. The great guitar players, be it Steve Vai, Jimi Hendrix, many others are available, Jimmy Page, etc., all of them are amazing, and they kind of transcend time and place. They're just so skilled at what they do, and a squealing guitar solo, if that's your cup of tea, is something that doesn't age like flares or, or something like that. You've got the sound, but matching the wailing guitars, you have the wailing voice of one William Bruce Rose, let's call him Axl Rose from now on, but his incredibly high-pitched screeching worked so well. And Axl Rose is a very talented musician. There were many instances where they would stay in the studio again and again as they would try and get the sound exactly like he had in his head. It wasn't kind of appreciated at the time, but this was a man who was singing and then sometimes sitting in front of a grand piano playing at a time when everybody associated them with just rock tunes. And a piano generally isn't used, a grand piano isn't generally used in rock tunes. But you see, the problem is, he always dreamt of being a star. But he learned piano instead of guitar. <laughs> which in the 90s didn't get you very far. But that came a bit later, and as their musical interests broadened, so too did their audiences, and we will be coming to Civil War in a minute. But to give you the setting, they form in 1985, and there was actually an interview with the guy, the agent who ends up hiring them, and everybody was going to see these bands on the Sunset Strip in LA, and the agent said that he knew that when he turned up, everybody would be paying attention to him because he was booking the best bands and he could start a bidding war just by being interested. So he walked in, he listened to them for 10 minutes, and he realized he had one of the greatest rock bands ever to sign up. But he then shook his head, walked out kind of in disgust. So everybody else thought, oh, oh hang on, he, he doesn't like them. No, let's forget about them. It's one of these things where people follow the leader, and he was incredibly smart. He then snuck back at the end of the session and signed them on the spot. They were obviously extremely excited to be working with a big name, and he gets them signed. So they form in 85. They get signed to Geffen Records in 1980s, one of the hottest music production companies, music labels around. They have got Aerosmith, for example, and Aerosmith are having a renaissance in the 1980s. And then in 1987, they released their seminal, absolute rock classic album, Appetite for Destruction. But Appetite for Destruction very quickly got into trouble because the central image 
if you open up the LP, is a painting, not done by anybody in Guns N' Roses, but basically there is this thing jumping over a fence with lots of swords like teeth. That's the appetite for destruction, but it's attacking this robot that seems to have just assaulted a woman. And it was all just seen as a bit seedy, the misogyny, the women as victims of sex objects of the 1980s, which wasn't a good look for a lot of that stuff. That specific image has not aged well. And so now when you buy the album, if you do that, you won't get that image anyway. Be you download it or buy the vinyl or get a CD of it. I don't know if you want to do that anymore. But now you get the cross with the five band members with their various different hairstyles on a skull. So if you like, it's a slightly different form of offensive as they're associating themselves with a cross. But I digress. On Appetite for Destruction, you got things like Paradise City, Sweet Child of Mine, and Welcome to the Jungle. These are stone-cold rock classics. Welcome to the jungle, we got fun and games. Where the, the guitar riff of Sweet Child of Mine is regularly voted the all-time greatest guitar riff ever. <laughs> And it's hard to disagree with that. I was watching, again, the Glastonbury 2023, and I paused it and rewound as what was happening on stage is Slash was just sort of playing an acoustic guitar. And then he goes from this sort of noodling of his guitar, playing around with it, almost jazz guitar, and then it goes into the riff of Sweet Child of Mine. And you could see the electricity amongst the crowd. And I rewound it and I brought the whole family down. Not all of them are fans of Guns N' Roses and went, just watch this. Here's a bunch of middle-aged guys showing to my teenage kids. It's like, kids, rock still works. And then they do it and everybody agreed. It's like, that was a moment on stage. So, Appetite for Destruction. Absolutely huge in 1987. It just keeps selling throughout the rest of the 1980s. But they sneak back in to the studio and produce a very short album. Comes out in 1988. It's called GNR Lies. It was considered quite disappointing. A lot of people presumed that this was a series of their test songs before Appetite for Destruction, but it was actually recorded after Appetite for Destruction. But already we're seeing the band experimenting. And what it is, is the only single that got released from that album was Patience, which is largely an acoustic song. And most of the, or at least half of the songs, are acoustic, not electric. And I, like everybody else, listened to it and went, yeah, okay, fine. It's a bit like Nirvana Bleach. Now, Nirvana Bleach was Nirvana's test songs before the big one, Nevermind, came out. But on this occasion, this was actually released afterwards, but they were already so big, it didn't damage them in any way. But then the truly impressive thing about Guns N' Roses and how they weren't just going to rest on their laurels and do it like some of the other hair metal bands is what happened in 1991. Because what happened then is three key things happened all in the same year. First of all, Terminator 2 came out and You Could Be Mine was a Guns N' Roses song, a new Guns N' Roses song that featured predominantly in the movie. An amazing huge blockbuster movie and you've got Guns N' Roses now associated with Schwarzenegger in his prime. On top of that, Schwarzenegger was in the music video as well. So you got the Terminator with Guns N' Roses in 1991. It just doesn't get cooler than that. Then they also went on tour. 
Now, generally, when bands go on tour, everybody wants to hear the hits. But what Guns N' Roses did is they did smatter in a few things like Welcome to the Jungle and Sweet Child of Mine. How could they not do it? But the vast majority of what they played was from their new albums, which I'm going to come on to in a moment. So big event number one, they get a huge hit with You Could Be Mine with Terminator 2. Number two is they go on a sellout worldwide tour featuring largely new music. And then number three, they release not one, but two double albums on the same day. Never in the history of music has anybody released two double albums on the same day. Use your illusion one and use your illusion two. And of course, most people went out and bought both of them, like me. I remember a newspaper article which said something to watch out for, the opening notes of Use Your Illusion 1, because it could mean you're going to be sitting there for three hours listening to Guns N' Roses pouring out of somebody's window. And why not? It was amazing. Generally, the consensus years later is that Use Your Illusion 1 is better than Use Your Illusion 2. But throughout these albums, they've got incredibly different... You Could Be Mine could have fitted on Appetite for Destruction, but something like November Rain, which has an orchestra in it, that would not have worked in Appetite for Destruction. It's like, that is too big a leap, but we bought it. And one of the tracks, Gem finally, I don't know, 15 minutes in or so, finally mentions Civil War, comes from Use Your Illusion 2. And Civil War is 7 minutes 40 seconds long. It was released as a single. Now, if you're not aware, your average single lasts about 3 minutes. 7 minutes 40? It's about the length of Bohemian Rhapsody, which barely got any musical play to begin with, because who's going to listen to a, a pop song for nearly, or rock song, for nearly 8 minutes? It was a problem for Queen. It was not really a problem for Guns N' Roses because Queen had already proven that point and by now Guns N' Roses were so big they could sort of get along or get away with anything. But just before I go back to Civil War, it's worth pointing out that so this, this was just colossal. That Both albums went multi-platinum and it reinforced all the good music that people were hearing on the tour as well. They were getting other bands in as well, other performers like Lenny Kravitz. He played with... Guns N' Roses, but then again Slash was a guest guitarist on Lenny Kravitz's first album. And then in 1993, they do a cover of punk songs, largely punk songs, called The Spaghetti Incident, which didn't sell nearly as well, and just didn't seem to catch like the other ones. Although it did have, again, some of their songs were beginning to appear in other movies. In this case, Interview with a Vampire had their version of Sympathy for the Devil. So, but they'd already done some good covers on Use Your Illusion. Live and Let Die, the Paul McCartney wing song from the James Bond movie, they did their own version. And I'm going to say it, the Guns N' Roses version is better than the Paul McCartney original. So by 1993, the Spaghetti Incident was well-reviewed, it sold okay, but it wasn't the phenomenon of Use Your Illusion or Appetite for Destruction. And then things went quiet. For 15 years, until 2008's Chinese Democracy, which I bought. And it was, again, really ambitious. 
IRS is a really rocky song which could have fitted with their earlier stuff, but a lot of it was more experimental. And you could see why for 15 years Axl Rose had been fiddling around in the studio. In fact, Axl Rose was such a perfectionist and clashed with his bandmates so often that pretty much everybody had left. And indeed, when there was meant to be Guns N' Roses on the MTV Awards, it was either the MTVs or the Grammys, it was headlined as Guns N' Roses, and it turned out to be every person in the band was a session musician, very capable that they are, specifically with white masks on, and the only person from the original lineup was Axl Rose singing, showing his ego hadn't changed much over the last 10 years, and you could see why the rest of the band had walked away. But by the time we get to just before COVID, the band gets back together. Obviously, older, maybe a little wiser, certainly a bit more broken down, their incredible substance abuse had taken its toll on a number of band members, but they still could perform. Indeed, there is an appetite for even more music from them, because clearly they've evolved over the years, and I would happily listen to another album by Guns N' Roses. So if you like, that's a, a history of their discography, a history of the band as a whole, but going back to Civil War, it opens, again, one of these signs of this experimentation. It actually opens from a famous line from Cool Hand Luke about what we've got here is failure to communicate. What? we've got here is failure to communicate. It's a part of the movie where bad things have happened in the prison. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You've got this Paul Newman starring movie about him being in prison, and you've got this really tough warden and police officers and prison officers just beaten down the the people in the prison and Paul Newman's character called Han Luke is one of these people who's kind of like rising above it all sort of a, a kind of hopeful situation and it's a classic movie it's a great turn by Paul Newman but this speech has been remembered mainly from Civil War the song it wasn't as famous before the song as after the song and it's a great piece now in the actual song it's really anti-war. There's the great line about how war, it feeds the rich and it buries the poor. There's also the, I think, a little too on the nose line towards the end about what's so civil about war anyway. Well, I mean, okay, they were heavily sedated rock gods by that point. That's perhaps not as clever as they think it is. But I digress. But but if you like, if you say to America, civil war, they're going to think of their civil war. And this is where we start heading towards the history bit, because I want to talk about civil wars, what we do call civil wars, what we don't call civil wars, what civil wars are actually something that the, the people tend to remember and others that are basically box office poison. So we're going to move into that in a moment. But as always, I'm going to say, hey, guys, don't forget, click subscribe, share retweet the stuff that I put out on Twitter and threads as well and just tell somebody about the podcast it all helps to spread things out give us a review as well if you could please thank you very much on whatever podcast format you're listening to that'd be great just it all helps for us to be seen gets the algorithm going thank you when we first talk about civil wars in history the first starting point is Rome when we talk about civil wars for starters, with somebody like Julius Caesar, where he basically went against Republican forces and it led to him becoming dictator for life. And we then get the Roman Empire rather than the Roman Republic. That's a broad brushstroke, everybody. There are then multiple other civil wars. If you like, the rest of Roman history, periodically at least once a generation. Sometimes you get several civil wars going on at the same time, but once you have so much power, it's worth fighting over. And some of these people succeed, and many of them die. So that's a classic example where we're happy using the word civil war. Fast-forwarding into the Middle Ages, what I find interesting is there are multiple times... I'm going to pick England because that's the one I know best. There are multiple times when barons start fighting the king and there's general uprising there's a period for example called the anarchy during the time of king stephen's reign this is in the early 1100s well 1130s onwards for about 20 years and it's referred to as the anarchy but it's a civil war on one side you've got stephen on the other side you've got matilda both of them are members of the anglo-norman royal family they can trace their ancestry back to William the Conqueror. But nobody calls that a civil war. And I, I want to know why not? Because a civil war, I would argue, is it's fighting within one country against different political points of view or different political interests in one country. 
And I think that's a pretty good description of it. But we don't talk about any of the infighting that happens in England or Britain until we come to the 1600s, so 500 years later, where we get the English Civil War. Now, there are a number of historians that want to change that name to the War of the Three Kingdoms, etc. But I'm in England. I'm talking to a lot of people who will understand what the English Civil War is. And broad brushstrokes would be you've got the parliamentarians, the people who believe that there needs to be the people in charge of the country and the royalists saying that the monarch is semi-divine and we need to listen to the monarch who is wholly anointed. And what's interesting is that once they capture Charles the first time, they don't know what to do with him. This actually happened centuries earlier with Henry III. His son was Edward I. We're in the 1200s there. But Simon de Montfort, one of the barons, one of the great nobility of England, the Anglo-Norman aristocracy, he captures Henry III in a battle and he doesn't know what to do with him. He can't kill him. He's wholly defined. He knows well that if he kills him, he's definitely the bad guy at that point. But what do you do? Because if Henry's saying, well, I'm still the king, I'm not quite sure what to do. And for about a year, Simon, in the 1200s, tries running the country as a sort of republic and it goes terribly wrong because nobody listens to him you have no authority and the scottish invade from the north of course they are because england's in complete chaos in the end because henry's son prince edward soon to be edward the first who if you know anything about him know that he's no mean slouch on the battlefields he was still in play and indeed he ends up biting simon de montfort in a battle simon actually dies in that battle and Henry III is restored to power. And even though you fast forward 400 years later, it's the same problem with Charles. What do we do with him? And because there's so much dithering around with him, it leads to Charles being able to gather enough forces to start a second round of civil war. And this time he manages to lose again, get captured again, which is not a good look. And this time round, they decide to try him for treason, which is absolutely the wrong thing to try King for, because how can you possibly, and this was the argument from Charles I, how can I betray the crown? I am the crown. The crown is the state, which was the situation in the 1600s, the political situation around the world at that point. So with that in mind, it led to his eventual execution. However, his son, Charles II, had managed to escape Britain, and he eventually comes back again when Oliver Cromwell dies, and he tries to bring his son into play, Richard Cromwell. That's a monarchy. If you're not going to elect the next person, they just happen to be the biological heir of your family, and they get the whole country, that's the nature of a monarchy. You could see why nobody cared about Richard, and why people wanted Charles II back again. That's the English Civil War, again, apologies for anybody who doesn't like that term, but what I find fascinating about it is it's a really interesting story. It's the story of how the tipping point, you get Magna Carta signed in the early 1200s, and at that point, that's the first time it says, in essence, that the king is not above the law. They cannot be a tyrant. They cannot ignore the laws of the land. And that's important that point onwards. But it's fair to say that in 1215, the king still has 95% of the power. 
So the question is, now that we have a constitutional monarchy in the 21st century, when was the tipping point? When did the people end up getting more power than the monarchy? And the answer is that's what the Civil War was all about. Once Charles II comes back, he's asked back, he's invited back, he doesn't come back at the head of an army, and he is painfully aware for his entire reign what happened to his dad when he got a little too out of line. So Charles II very much made sure that all laws were ratified by Parliament. And from that point onwards, we get a fading away of monarchical power and an increase of power in Parliament. So that if you fast forward 150 years, you've got George III, who by the early 1800s is very sick, the madness of King George, he is obviously suffering from some kind of ailment. If he was actually in charge of everything, we would have lost the Napoleonic Wars. But he's not in charge of everything by then. It's Parliament and you get prime ministers like William Pitt the Younger, who are very capable politicians who can absolutely help run the war effort against Napoleon. And so that's also why we didn't have a French Revolution in Britain, because we weren't run by a dictatorial monarch anymore. We had a parliament that, in theory, was representatives of the common people. It was flawed, but it was the late 1700s. Cut them some slack. But what I find fascinating is, while it is really interesting, politically, socially, militarily, there are great stories. Kings die, princes flee, etc., it is absolute box office poison. Every time the English Civil War, somebody tries to do a book about it, a movie, a TV show, nobody's interested. For some reason, it just does not capture the imagination. Now, let's fast forward to the US Civil War. By comparison, that is box office dynamite. If you were to take into account inflation, the biggest grossing movie of all time is Gone with the Wind. Now, it's a problematic movie for sure in the modern eyes it's absolutely the backdrop of it is the civil war and so that's the biggest movie ever and big documentaries and other movies about the u.s civil war they get big releases big budgets and a big box office as well so it's interesting how some countries really want to pick through their civil wars and other people kind of want to forget about them another forgotten one is the spanish civil war I will never forget the time I went on holiday to Spain and I kept reading about these places that we were going to and then when the guides were walking us around they would show us the Moorish architecture, they would talk about the second half of the 20th century or the Reconquista, but what they always failed to mention, the Civil War. And I was literally reading in a book, as like, this place was a key hospital for the Republicans, etc. Nothing absolutely nothing and whenever i asked one of the guides about it i was pretty much given a short sharp shrift it was like the spanish civil war in spain was a dirty little secret and generally when we look at the spanish civil war there aren't a lot of movies or tv shows about it it tends to be books and documentaries but they are out there it's fair to say they're not big budget or do gangbusters at the box office and then we come to the Russian Civil War, which has an absolutely classic movie made by Hollywood associated with it, Dr. Zhivago. And Russia loves talking about the Civil War for the first part of the 20th century because it created the Soviet Union. And so the Soviet Union is going to talk about the heroes of 
the revolution and somewhat changed what actually happened. It's always worth remembering that the revolution started, the Tsar was deposed before Lenin even got into the country. At the very beginning, it was not communist and it was a nascent democracy. No guarantee that it would have turned into a fully-fledged democracy, but then Lenin came in and in essence, the communists just take over everything. The Russian Civil War is horrific. But I then want to go into one of the civil wars that you probably never heard of, and that is the Taiping Rebellion in China. And this is an opportunity for me to tell you one of the strangest and saddest stories in history. It all centers around a man called Hong Zhu Quan. Now, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, but Hong, who I will now call from, from now on, he was in the imperial system in imperial China in the 1800s. And I find this fascinating. The Chinese structure of the civil service was so elaborate. There were little villages built up round the examination areas. People would study for years in an attempt to try and get one of these civil servant positions. And they're considered by historians the hardest exams in history. Men would literally take decades to finally qualify. And you had to pay money each time. But it did mean, in theory, that you got the best of the best and the most accurate, biggest swats, smartest people for these jobs, which is one of the reasons why the Chinese bureaucracy lasted for so long. Well done to the Chinese society on that. But Hong is one of the people who tried and tried and tried and failed. And what happened was he got very, very sick. And while he was ill, somebody gave him, we are talking about the early 1800s here, at a time when the British had just fought two opium wars with China, which had forced China to open up. I'm not going to go into the details of that. It's kind of irrelevant to this particular story. But it allowed missionaries to come in and European influence to come in as well. It wasn't just the British, the, the Japanese, the Americans, French, Austro-Hungarians, the list goes on and on. And so there's these foreign influences floating in, flowing into China. And one of the things was missionaries. And Hong was lying there very ill and read a Christian missionary pamphlet. And what I love about this, and I'm not making this up, in his feverish state, and he eventually recovered, and he came to the conclusion, the surprising conclusion, that he was Jesus's brother. Record Jesus had been dead for nearly 2,000 years, and certainly did not come from a Confucian background, and also definitely wasn't Chinese, but apart from that, I'm sure all of this works fine. What Hong decided to do is he recognized that this bureaucratic system was unwieldy and loaded with problems, and so he started to help people. He started to help the poor, feed them, organize them, protect them, and this led to more people coming to his assistance and aid, and this led to him eventually creating a parallel structure in society, the heavenly kingdom it was known as, and Eventually, some of the army started moving over to his side, and this leads to the what's known as the Taiping Rebellion, a civil war in China between Hong's troops and the Qing Empire. The Qing is the dynasty of Chinese that are actually running China. And 
This goes on. The main fighting goes from 1850 to 1864. But just because it officially ends in 64, there are still Taiping rebellious armies still marauding through the countryside until 1871. So this is over 20 years. Now, here's the horrifying thing. At least 20 million people died in the Taiping Rebellion. To put that into context, 10 million died in World War I. 60 million is the largest death toll ever, World War II. So the second largest death toll in human history is a civil war you've never heard of, started by a man who was delirious and then clearly a very strange idea about motivations. This fighting went on and on, and eventually the Qing Empire had to turn to their erstwhile enemies and speak to largely the French and British, saying to them, we need your modern weapons. Now, China is... We don't have time to go through this again and again, but China, by 1800, had fallen badly behind everywhere else. Most of the Chinese... So you'd have Chinese armies of 700,000 strong. The Grand Armée, the largest army in European history up until that point, Napoleon going into Russia in 1812 was just shy of half a million. And yet there are multiple 700,000, nearly double the size of the Grand Armée, multiple armies in China. To give you an idea, at the time, Britain had a population of 10.5 million. China, by the end of the 1800s, had a population of 450 million. So it was just devastation everywhere. And the soldiers were armed with matchlock rifles. That's something which fires the gunpowder using a smouldering cord. That's the technology going back to the English Civil War. It's 200 or 150 years out of date compared to what the Europeans had. So no wonder they lost wars against the European powers. So with that in mind, the Taiping Rebellion was just colossal armies smashing against each other. Taiping Rebellion, because Taiping was one of the key cities in China, it was captured by Hong's forces, and it then became their centre of administration. In 1864, there is this huge siege against Taiping, and Hong dies in it, and his 15, 16-year-old son, who's also called Hong, because that's the family name, He's called Hong Tianggufu. Apologies on that surname. Let's call him Younger Hong. He's only 16 years old and he is useless. Whereas his father had a vision and he was charismatic and he was seen as the center of administration. Once again, we got the problem with monarchy that this kid had earned nothing and was in no way capable of running an army or force against the Qing and their foreign European allies. And so he's captured at the end. His end is utterly pathetic because he doesn't really understand the situation. He's not begging for his life, but he's saying things like, I want to go back to my studies. I want to work in the bureaucracy. In essence, leave me alone. I'm no trouble. And he probably was no trouble and nobody cared about him. But he was the son of the man who had caused the deaths of 20 million people there was only one thing that was going to happen to him, and he was indeed executed in 1864, even though he was a teenage boy with zero threats to the government. So we've talked about Britain, America, 
Russia, Spain and China. And sadly, the problem of all these civil wars is you have families pitted against themselves. If you have an invading country coming into your own country, that's a galvanizing effect. Generally, you see the nation forming as one saying, we don't like these foreigners coming into our country, we will now fight to push them out again. But the problem with a civil war is it depends on your political point of view, your motivations, fathers fight sons and other depressing things. Going back to Guns N' Roses, what's so civil about war anyway? I hear you on that, but I would say that civil war is even more insidious than the more common type of conflict. With that, I'm going to leave it there, and as always, another episode coming soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.